This is a Media Lab podcast. Welcome to Putting It Together, the podcast that goes through the entire body of work of Stephen Sondheim, show by show and song by song. My name is Kyle Marshall, your self-described Sondheim expert. I need to make this intro fairly brief this week because it is so hot in my house. I am I am dripping in sweat, so uh, it is uncomfortable for me to be sitting here right now. And I really want you to get into this interview with Dave Meschler because it was really fun to talk to him. One of my favorite things to do is to talk to composers because they're able to break down why I love Sondheim in easy to understand language, or at least most of the composers I've talked to have been able to do that for me. And this is no different. Uh, like I mentioned last week, this is kind of our intermission period of our Follies season. We'll be back into the quote unquote second act of Follies next week, but I thought we should take some time and maybe understand a little bit more about the music, about Sondheim, and uh, about a great musician that lives in the United States. So that's what we're going to be doing here this week. It's a weird paradox when I do this show because I simultaneously can't believe that we're only halfway through Follies, and yet at the same time I'm like, we're halfway through Follies? It's a weird position to be in. There is so many songs in this show that we're going to be talking about. In the second half, I get to talk to so many cool people about the songs from Follies. Uh, So we're going to be here still until October talking about Follies, and I can't wait. We have some patrons that help support this show, and in my quest to become entirely fan supported i need to give a great big thank you to those people who have gone over to the patreon page patreon.com slash putting it together podcast and decided to help support the show for the people who have helped to support at the god that's good tier that includes todd fuller and jack healy and especially big thank you for deciding to put your faith into this podcast. I am now going to go thank some sponsors, and then when we return, it'll be my conversation with Dave Meschler. Putting It Together is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta-made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. This episode of Putting It Together is brought to you by Park Power, a provider of electricity and natural gas in Alberta that offers low rates, awesome service, and profit sharing with local charities. In Alberta, you get to choose who to buy your energy from. If you switch retailers, nothing changes about the delivery of electricity or natural gas to your home or business. If you have an existing contract, you're going to want to find out the terms for leaving. If you don't, then it's even easier to sign up for Park Power. The choice is yours, and there's a better deal available to you. Learn more at parkpower.ca. This episode of Putting It Together is also brought to you by World on Fire, a new podcast from CBC Edmonton. World on Fire is a new five-part series that takes you to the front lines of -of out-of-control wildfires in Canada, Australia, and California. Recorded during the COVID-19 pandemic, hosts Adrian Lamb and Mike Flanagan look at what it takes to find hope in the midst of fear and destruction and how communities affected by wildfires rebuild. The series examines the high costs the wildfires cause to people's health, homes, and communities. Find World on Fire on the CBC Listen app or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find it online at cbc.ca slash worldonfire. 
Dave Meshley, thank you so much for joining me here today. My pleasure, Kyle. Thanks for having me. You know, when we were having our bit of a, you know, email back and forth, uh, and I didn't have any spots for you, I felt bad. Uh, but I thought your story was so interesting that I want you to be kind of here, kind of in the middle of our Follies season to kind of delve into not just Follies, but also music in general. I want to know sure. the first time you became obsessed with music. That's an interesting question. Um, I was born on the cattle farm in Virginia and uh, in the States and had an older brother, older sister, younger brother. And it wasn't a particularly musical or artsy family. We grew up listening to whatever our parents were listening to, the Beatles, Doobie Brothers, Mm -hmm. um, Harry Belafonte, Harry Nilsson records. But sometime around middle school, um, we had a pretty good high school band, middle school and high school band program. There really was almost no musical training before that, but by seventh grade, I started playing tuba of all instruments in band, and I wanted to follow in the footsteps of my older brother who played clarinet, and then eventually he taught me a little guitar and bass. And it was actually a pretty slow burn for me. I, it was, I was always doing it. It was always my social outlet. A lot of my friends, I came from a pretty small, conservative, backwater town we grew up in North Carolina after mm-hmm. we moved away from Virginia. So I was friends with the band Geeks. Didn't even really discover pit orchestras or music direction, let alone musical theater or Sondheim, actually until pretty much college. Okay, so later and on. Yeah, I, my training, I ended up uh, studying music in college and got my degree, but my main focus up until then was physics and astronomy. I went all the way through college, assuming I would be a scientist by day and a musician by night. Kind of like a superhero of some sort, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I would go that far, but yeah, in some fashion. And I, to be completely honest, um, I've, I've never really thought of it this way, but about halfway through college, I took a course, an American studies course on the um, American musical theater. And they looked at six musicals, starting with uh, Showboat going through Carousel, mm-hmm. West Side Story, Guys and Dolls, one other I can't remember right now. And it ended with Company. Oh, and interesting. I That's were, a really interesting way to look at it. Yeah, it, it kind of went from the very early stages of modern musical theater and the book musical all the way through the concept musical and Company. And I, <laughs> I was 20 years old, and I had never heard Stephen Sondheim. And I had even already started doing tons of musical theater but I remember exactly where I was when I heard, I sat down and listened to, over Christmas break, I was listening to the textbooks that they, the teachers had sent us, which were the mm-hmm. cast recordings and a few other readings. And I remember hearing the um, short little prologue of Company. Bobby. Bobby. And and after that everything just clicked into place. I, I, I took music way more seriously. I uh, that became my primary major and went to graduate school for music instead of doing physics and astronomy. And, you know, that was about nine, 17 years ago. Okay. And so now I'm, yeah, I've been a professional freelance conductor and musical director um, since. 
All right. So, well, I want to break down some things there. I just wanted to backtrack just very briefly because there's something that we share in common because I also grew up on a cattle farm. So I find that very interesting. Well, uh, no way. <laughs> yeah. Okay. In a small in little Canada town or? in Canada. Yeah, in a very small town outside uh, in, in Canada. And I was in a pretty good middle school band program. And I went all the way to high school too. I did play clarinet though. I was not a brass person. Okay. I was, well, I was I in the woodwind that. section. So uh, no, there was no a brief moment of time where I thought I was going to become a music teacher actually myself, but then I yeah. didn't actually uh, pursue that to any degree. Um, I have a question though of tuba players in particular, because it's not that they aren't important. Of course, in the orchestra, they, they, have this very good and, and central role but i always felt bad a little bit because a lot of the music that we picked at least in my band program it was like you know there was like five notes and then they kind of got to rest for like half the song and then they could come back at the end um how do you not become frustrated by not having like the the huge parts inside of the song sometimes band at first was very not just a social experiment but uh, i was so interested in the community aspect that um i took my part seriously and mm -hmm. you know was there's some an aspect of camaraderie that's especially tight with the low brass or not even the low brass but any section that sits in the back mm -hmm. i really think you know there's all these internet memes of like first violinist or clarinetist actor look like this or piccolo and, and there's a grain of truth to them even though they're super generalized yeah. but low brass players and people towards the back it's like you're not under the eye of every, you're looking at everybody else and you can relax a bit more and you're the you know i i you're the base of the uh of the orchestra the fundamental and so you do have to stay spot on you know the tubas are like a tuba is like the subwoofer of the orchestra symphony orchestra right. and so there's that joy of it yeah you don't play a lot of notes but when you do everyone hears you and you have to lock in the intonation to everyone so it's just a different set of challenges I was never big on wanting to play the melody. Yeah, I really do think there are certain personalities that lend themselves to different instruments and how those instruments have been orchestrated over the years and written for. Mm -hmm. So, so fast forwarding then to that moment where you're listening to company kind of for the first time. Have you ever like broken it down then of what it was about that score specifically that seemed to like flip a switch on in your brain? I will tell you. Yes, it's not the score. It was the lyrics. Really? Okay. Now something. This is something you've probably thought about a lot, but, yeah. but you know, I've dedicated my career to interpreting primarily being an interpreter of Sondheim's works and uh, his theatrical canon. I'm here to tell you that the thing that draws me to him so strongly is his master of, of lyric writing. And I think, you know, music is subjective, ultimately. You know, some people are going to have a different reaction to different types of music to different styles to different songs to chordal textures harmonies instrumentation even but lyric writing is so insanely hard to do it and to not hear the voice of the author mm. and it was the lyrics that drew me in and of course the, the music too i like a lot of the same influence things that influenced sondheim late romantic stuff like ravel or even early 20th century primitivism and neoclassical stuff like Stravinsky or Hindemith. Um, so I already loved that stuff. But hearing the lyrics, hearing Bobby sing about, see, singing about these, these deep existential dilemmas yeah. <laughs> that he had, and something in my brain, I just could not forget it. And it just took me to a whole other place. And I'd been, I'd been 
playing in a few pit orchestras and been pretty into it. You know, my first show playing in the pit orchestra was The Wiz and I was playing mm-hmm. bass in the band and the orchestra and it was so fun and I loved being in the pit. I'd been a techie, theater techie backstage uh, with my friends just helping move the sets, build the sets. You know, my dad was a carpenter and mechanic, so I was handy with a drill, but basically just did what my friends told me to do. And after playing in the pits, I'd played in The Wiz, played in a handful of random shows, The Goodbye Girl, wow. a super not well-known Neil Simon Marvin Hamlis, David Zippel show, Once Upon a Mattress, Guys and Dolls, a couple right. of stamp classics. But I was really just in it for the community, and it was fun. And I liked playing different styles of music. Um, I love that musicals were always had this diversity of styles. Even if it was an old school Golden Age show, The Wiz, you know, um, anything had a diversity of music uh, and style. But man, when I heard Company, not only, yes, the music was there, the score was exhilarating, all these you know, ninths, elevenths, thirteenth chords and augmented harmonies and just things I'd never really heard before. Um, major minor chords. But the lyrics with that, I just could not get enough. And then I listened through the whole album straight through. I went back and listened again. I read every liner note I could. I found the DA Pennebaker right. uh, documentary, yeah. which God, thank God for that. But wow, I wish they'd kept making those. <laughs> Me too. It's so like one of my biggest frustrations that that, sh- that show that that was even made for did not continue on. Because I'd love to see other <laughs> cast recordings being made. But... I know. I want to come back to Sondheim in a moment. But I, I want to finish off on kind of your trajectory here a little bit. Because there must have been a- at a point when you were you know, going through your degree uh, with your double major that you kind of flipped into wanting to uh, conduct, compose, that kind of thing. So what was it about that area of music that drew you to that well and here's the thing when you start out as a musician nobody starts out as a conductor mm-hmm. yeah you have a couple prodigies who like hop up on the podium at a pretty young age like somebody like gustavo Dumel, the la phil he purportedly you know made his debut when he was 13 with his youth orchestra <laughs> sure. but for the most part it's an interesting thing because even some people will start writing music at a very early age but no one starts out conducting towards the end of undergraduate and i was thinking well do i I was really starting to shift from music, from physics and astronomy into music, and maybe I could make a career. I said, well, I'm an okay bass player, but I'm not going to be like a top, top bass player. And tuba playing was really fun, but man, it was hard to get a job for that. You know, there's one tuba in an orchestra. There are no professional wind ensembles or bands, with, unless you're going to the military. And they're very rare in Broadway writing. And so um, I said, you know, I, I think conducting, I'd been doing musical theater. I'd fallen really hard for Sondheim. I'd, I'd gotten to do Sweeney Todd, uh, Into the Woods, Merrily We Roll Along, Sunday in the Park with George, all in college. Oh, wow. I was, yeah, I was super, super lucky and then and, and pushed for those shows too. To me, I felt like I was the best musician I could be. And like at my height as a human, also as a, as a music director in theater. So I started studying conducting more seriously and, you know, was looking at graduate school for that. There was a very specific moment where I was a TA one summer for, a, it's called Governor's School here in the States, where they do like an academic and fine arts summer camp. And uh, students go for a couple of weeks and they have these teaching assistant fellows that are also kind of like your dorm room. T- um, they're like your counselors too. So I was assistant teaching assistant for both the uh, physics and astronomy class and for the orchestra. Wow. And uh, it, it was mostly a summer camp counselor job, but it was, it was pretty fun. They had a guest speaker every week, and uh, at one point, they brought in uh, a theoretical physicist 
I can't even remember the guy's name, strangely enough, even though he completely changed the course of my life. <laughs> I, I lost the program and I just can't remember his name, but he, he came in and was talking. He got to have lunch with the physics and astronomy students. We got to ask him questions. And uh, he, he was saying, oh, so what area of physics do you want to do? Are you, do you want to go into grad school? And I said, well, I can't really decide right now between physics or music. What, how, did, how did you choose theoretical physics? And he told me something I'll never forget. He said, you know, as my job as a theoretical physicist, I, I, go, I read papers all day. I go to coffee a lot. I just think about theoretical equations that don't exist yet, mathematical partial solutions. And I read a lot of papers and textbooks. And he said, every now and then, I get to give a talk or publish a paper. And it's really exciting. But that's only 5 or 10% of the time. The rest of the time, the 90%, I'm reading papers, going to coffee, thinking about physics that doesn't exist yet. And he says, I love that part. I love the 90%. And he says, yeah, the other 10% is great too, but that's expected. Anybody would like that. And he said, if you think about it, from my perspective, most jobs have that breakdown. There's 5 or 10% that is really cool and flashy or the perks are really great. And the other 90%, you're doing not grunt work, but you're, you're, you're doing the work. You're, you're, it's not glamorous. Mm-hmm. And it was like a light bulb went off in my brain. And I just was like, holy cow. In physics and astronomy, I'm uh, one week of the year, I get to go to an observatory and stay up all night and study the stars and look through a telescope. Very cool, fun stuff. The other 50 to 51 weeks of the year, I'm in front of a computer trying to learn how to shell script in Unix and analyze data. I was not so into that about right, myself. Right. And then instantly my brain went to music and theater. And I said, holy cow. You're performing some of the times, but most of the time you're in rehearsal. And that's what I loved. And I loved rehearsing theater most of all, because you're trying to, it's so challenging. There's so many different aspects. You got to work with a director and a choreographer and the orchestra and the singers and being a accompanist and a conductor. And it was just like, I just loved it. And at that point, I was like, not only did I know I wanted to be a conductor and go into music, but I knew that theater i wanted specifically i wanted things with lyrics you know i i I loved going in the recording studio i loved playing in bands i loved uh uh, doing all of it but um theater was the the most offered me the most of that that's a cool breakdown i think that is just great to think about in just anyone's life which is like (laughs) if i'm trying to make a decision like what is when if there's two things you're trying to uh, choose from is like what is it that i actually enjoy doing more right you have to enjoy yeah, well, that suck sometimes, right? Exactly. And most jobs really do have that breakdown. Um, some people might say, you know, like whether it's something like whether you're working as a garbage person, you know, I mean, that can be like not a very fun job. But for some people, it's like, hey, I don't want to uh, take my home, my work home with me. But when I leave work, I want to just leave it at work. Right. And then I've got my own life outside of this. So what You can think of it however you want. But I, I man, I'm really grateful for that guy whoever he Wh- whoever is. he is and there's no oh, way to I, ever I, find I, out yeah. um, <laughs> now, now just because you uh, are also like wearing the shirt and i was on your website earlier here this week and now i'm probably gonna mispronounce it is it awesome is that how you say the orchestra? <laughs> no uh, we just uh we just call it awesome orchestra oh, but okay. we put the umlaut down to be kind of metal yeah of course okay <laughs> <laughs> silly uh but i want to know more about this like where did that come from so I moved to the Bay Area 10 years ago um, to work on a production of Three Penny Opera. Mm. 
that drew me here. And after I started becoming a working in the theater scene here, which is pretty um, was pretty vibrant. You know, there's something like 400 theater companies in the big, greater Bay Area, and that wow. includes schools and colleges and educational yeah. programs, but and a couple of Lort theaters too. Um, I was I was oftentimes contracting my own musicians, so I would go to shows, see them both, see to see the show, see the production see the actors, get to know the musicians. And I kept a roster of players that I would contract. And over time, a lot of my friends said, you know, we love playing in your pit orchestras, but we also love, we want to go on other adventures. We, we would have these random flash mobs pop mm. up or ways to, uh, you know, like special surprise events or just these silly, ridiculous events that I would say, hey, let's get a small orchestra together. You know, like let's do the, let's do a retelling of like a secret, kind of super nerdy uh, retelling of The Empire Strikes Back, but with mashed up with music of Les Mis. Let's get, our, <laughs> let's get an orchestra yeah. together and, and just be silly. And we, we had all these people show up and I had a friend with a live work warehouse space and we had chairs and a big tub of free PBR beer. And we met and played through orchestral music and we kind of decided early on to, to create something that was uh, part rehearsal, part performance, free and open to anyone. And our mission is just to make orchestras more accessible to our communities. So, And this is just like almost like pop-up orchestras or are you like charging yeah. money for these performances? Uh, no, we, we do a handful of events over the year, but mostly our, our kind of like flagship event is once a month. We gather together, we, we, we post the event way ahead of time and decide on music. Usually we'll have three pieces that we read through over three hours and we send out the sheet music and uh, people show up, they bring a music stand in their instrument and we read through it. And it's like a pop-up orchestra, um, kind of flash mob style, but we play at a lot of places that don't normally, we don't play at concert halls that often. Mm -hmm. And we'll play on the side of the street or the um, subway station or outdoor in a park or a lot of public spaces, museums. And the Bay Area has pretty good weather for that. So and we'll play a whole variety of music. Um, a lot of, you know, we'll usually pair up a traditional piece, you know, an old war horse by Beethoven or somebody. We'll play a new piece by a local composer. And usually something in between, like music from uh, video games or film right. music or television or uh, with a local band or artist, some different style. And we try and find a balance. And it's been, we've been around for seven years now. You know, we've, we're a small nonprofit. It's not some giant organization, but we usually have each time at least a hundred plus musicians show up. So it's like a full orchestra. But that must be like pretty, pretty amazing. If like I'm just like a rando walking down the street and like, oh my gosh, there's a hundred piece orchestra that's playing something over here. Like kind of just draws you in. Yeah, the foot traffic is can be really exciting because people just stop in their tracks and they're like, what is this? You know, what is this group playing through? Uh, you know, the Super Mario Brothers theme or something, right. or the, um, the soundtrack to, you know, the original Star Wars suite, or, you know, uh, Prokofiev's Romeo and Juliet suites or something, just totally random. And we've done musical theater over the years with singers and right. choral pieces, pretty much everything under the sun. I just, what I think, what I love about this whole concept is something that I've been thinking about. And I mean, maybe it's just because I'm wanting to go out and experience live performance again after being cooped up inside for so long. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, there, there is this idea that the, the, this amazing music 
uh, these performances are trapped behind that cost. Not that I don't think artists should be paid for their work, but it's like, I, I forget who it was. I want to say it was Yo-Yo Ma, but I can't be certain on that. Uh, did that experiment where he played in a, like a New York um, a subway, like no one yeah. really paid him mind, but he was like selling out for like $200 seats <laughs> just down, just down the street. Right. So it's like this beautiful stuff that people don't really have access to just because of there is that, that pay that they have to do. It's nice to be bringing that back out to the masses. I know that video you're talking about. I th- the one I've seen, I think is Joshua Bell, the violinist. Yeah. That's my who, who just yeah. is, who's on the same bar as Yo-Yo Ma, but, uh, you know, had kind of disguised himself. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it's perceived value <laughs> right and people think oh well i'm busy i'm going somewhere even if they recognized him one one person did and just stayed and listened to him for like 10 minutes or something in the video but yeah the, the whole idea is that you know all these orchestral musicians are like whether they studied in college or played in jazz band or whatever they know they they know that the a full symphony orchestra is like unlike anything else for the senses it's a force of nature and yet it's become so ossified the short explanation is that you know the the u.s and a lot of countries don't support the arts and so they've had to fend for themselves whereas if you go to germany or a lot of european countries they've got you can throw a stick and you know find an a good orchestra or opera house anywhere Mm -hmm. so uh the plight is difficult but they have become ossified and because they rely on this funding model that or lack of funding model they play stuff that people know so they play a bunch of dead white guy music and that's just what they have to do to survive or or that's what they've told themselves so now there's room for all of this you know i love going to the san francisco symphony and other world-class orchestras and hearing a piece played really well but you don't always get to see the an audience that looks like the community that they actually live in and so uh you know, our whole mission is just to make it as adventurous as possible, whether it's where we play, how we play, with whom we play, or what we play. And yeah, we're not the first to do this, but we're we're kind of the only ones who do it in like most of the time, you know? Yeah. And um, really go for it and really take an orchestra to a subway station and actually try and get them to sound good, not just kind of hack our way through it. So. <laughs> Now I should we shouldn't go too far without me being like uh bringing up a super embarrassing fact about me which is uh this um talking about like conducting and no one like starts as a conductor. I will say at, at around the same time I was getting into musical theater which was you know fairly young I was about 9 or 10 is when I was like getting super into it. Uh I was also huh? getting like super obsessed with like Mozart specifically uh and, oh. and other like uh classical music but that's what i would do in my room i would actually pretend i was conducting their and i still do that sometimes to be brutally honest when no one's watching but it's like it's something fun about like i am actually controlling what is happening in front of me oh it's no no shame nothing embarrassing about it uh, i still do that <laughs> and i'm a professional <laughs> conductor it's terribly exciting to feel the music in your body and there's like a choreographic element oh yeah everybody's done that and and plus that's the thing i mean the con- conducting is i think i heard sir simon rattle the great conductor um once say that conducting is the great one of the true great fake professions <laughs> in that you know if you're playing with a world-class orchestra it doesn't matter what you do up there they'll play great right um I, i'd be hard-pressed to find somebody who hasn't done that especially right. somebody who's a trained musician like you so. right, right now um have you actually conducted a sondheim piece before yeah, so I've done about, I think at this point, I've done about two dozen Sondheim productions as musical director okay. and conductor. 
let's see if I can work my way through. I've done company. I've done West Side Story three times, if you want to count that as yeah. you know, Sondheim production, of course. Um, I've done Little Night Music three times. I was about to start another production before right. COVID-19 happened, so not to date this episode, right, but right. <laughs> I've never done Follies, always wanted to. Yeah. Um, seen it a bunch of times. Um, trying to go through it chronologically. Always wanted to do um, Pacific Overture. has been extremely high on my list. <laughs> and the frogs. I want to do it in an actual swimming pool. You know, the original yeah, no, dude, version. Yeah. But <laughs> go right back to the original source. Have you done Sweeney Todd done, or anything like that at all? Done, or no? done Sweeney Todd three times. Uh, so much fun and so insanely difficult. I mean, yeah. it's like a Bernard Herrmann score. As, yeah. You know, it's like 90% of it is music. Uh, done Merrily We Roll Along also three times and have another production plan for 2021. It's absolutely one of my favorite pieces, as I've mentioned yeah. you. Sunday in the Park, I've been lucky enough to do twice. Into the Woods, I've done seven times and have an eighth production coming up next year. Uh, never gets old. None of them ever do. I've done Assassins twice and never done Passion or Roadshow. Though I got to see Passion live recently. I've, I've very good small production. Who and was there um, anyone like super famous in that production? Or am I thinking of something else? Oh, this was a local yeah, production okay. in San Francisco, um, but but done very well in a chamber uh, chamber setting. Yeah, I've done. I've out of all the shows I've done, I think like over like a hundred professional productions and some student productions. Like a quarter of them are Sondheim productions. I I just live and breathe it, and I'll always say yes, and I'll always go after those theater companies that are doing it, right, right. or I'll always convince them when I can to uh, to try a show that will work for their theater space or their cast size or orchestra size or whatever. So, you know, I'm, I'm curious and I don't necessarily know how to ask this question, but is there necessarily anything different about a Sondheim show than say another type of musical theater, another composer, or is there is something like unique about his scores that you really have to work with uh, to perform properly? There is something unique about them. Again, I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm the music director, but I'm going to talk about lyrics. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, it's like Shakespeare. You can't fake it. You know, you go and see people that are doing Shakespeare that don't really understand the language, right. and you're just like, okay, this is um, gobbledygook. You can't under, not you just can't understand what's going on, but they don't understand. It. It's obvious. Yeah, right, and right. It's the same with Sondheim material. You, you give it to people who are, you know, don't have that training or don't have that insight or didn't have the time to look into it or the direction. And it's very obvious. Musically, it's very rare. Most shows don't require big voices. Um, you know, they're all written after mics were invented and employed, theater miking. And they're always very ably orchestrated if you're using the original orchestration by Jonathan Tonick or mm -hmm. Michael Stavrovin or what have you. When you give them that material, those lyrics to sing, those dramatic situations, mm -hmm. uh, it is so painfully obvious when they have not on their homework or not thinking about the lyrics or just thinking about the sound of their voice. Yeah. So I would say that's the thing that sets them apart the most. Um, but music wise, uh, it is very difficult to find cuts in the show. You know, a lot of musical theaters, especially whether it's summer stock or regional productions or community theater or educational. And I've worked in all of them. But most other shows, you know, you do a production of Kiss Me Kate mm -hmm. or uh, carousel and the first thing is hey are we going to cut the act two dream ballet or are we going right. to what cuts are we going to make are we going to play the overture are we going to go straight into the show are we going to cut this scene change music and by and large for a sondheim show every the, the fat has already been trimmed in the score for the most part mm -hmm. um, there's a couple exceptions but you know 
if you had to cut a song from Follies, I mean, what would you pick? Yeah, right. you, you can't. They're yeah. all crucial. Well, and, and honestly, like that's a great segue to to go into Follies. The the biggest thing that I've been learning through recording all the episodes for this season is even the songs that when I first approached this score and I didn't really understand what, what the heck was going on, but uh, even the even the numbers that you I think at first glance think are throwaway. Boy, if you dig into them, they're not very throwaway. And it's like, oh, if you take this out, it kind of ruins the point later on. And like, you, you, you really, it is a puzzle piece. Like, if you remove one thing, you're going to have to change a whole bunch of other stuff for this to all be thematically exactly. relevant. Exactly. Exactly. Suddenly, the scene right after before makes no sense because he was way beyond the integrated musical. You know, I mean, he was already, that was, he had already gone through that crash course with his mentor, Oscar Hammerstein, mm -hmm. and learned how the book and song should interact. And it was taken to the next level, um, along with a number of other composer lyricists of his, uh, of his time period. But yeah, it, it, it seems, especially in a show like Follies, where the songs, uh, it's a collection of songs and people think, well, is it a score? Yes, absolutely. You've got themes that come back, not just from the overturn, whatnot. Mm -hmm. um, you might think, oh, this is just a character song, but no, it's all pastiche and it's all meant to underscore the emotional moments before and after between the two main couples and you really can't cut anything otherwise not only is the pacing off but like you said the dramatic and thematical thematic context just it doesn't get ripped to shreds but yeah i was i was recently uh, there was a production i'm not going to name any names but that i was working on recently and they you know wanted to keep things trimmed down mm -hmm. And uh, they asked, oh, what do you think about, what are your cuts? We need to shave off 10 or 15 minutes, ideally 20 minutes of this show. And it was a Sondheim production. And I, you know, you pick your battles. Uh, I've never really done that for a Sondheim show before, but mm -hmm. uh, it was, um, I, I respected this company and these, these directors and stuff, but I almost sort of blanched visibly when they brought it up because <laughs> I thought, what am I going to cut? <laughs> yeah, and right. so, yeah, in Follies, yeah, Follies is no different. It doesn't matter. that They've done the work. He's done the work with the book writers, too. And, and yeah. so his, 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 his scores are so integrated that you can't just cut a number and then not have to cut other stuff to, in the book scenes and in the um, choreography and in the sets and lighting. I mean, suddenly, yeah, you, you, if you cut one thing, you know, the knee bone's connected to the thigh bone. Um, right, right. At, unlike a bunch of other shows leading up to that where you have to sometimes to make sure. them work. So, so when was your first introduction to Follies? You know, Follies came kind of late for me because of the whole issue of the recording. Yeah. The original broadcast recording never really making it. So I, I think in 2005, towards the end of college, they, there was this, uh, you probably have this, this box set DVD of the Sondheim collection. Right. And it was, uh, they had Sondheim with the New York, uh, Swinney Todd with the New York Phil. They had the original PBS great performances of Into the Woods. They had same thing for Passion. They had a couple other sh shows I can't remember. Plus, they had the uh, Carnegie Hall yeah. Follies in concert yeah. with like that incredible cast of Manny Patinkin and and all of them. And you know, I was very confused because it was like I was. It was kind of like watching the DA Pennebacher recording cast recording of Company because it was mostly behind the scenes, and then. They showed some of the numbers in concert, but I was just like, what is going on in this show? I'm, I'm in, deeply intrigued, but I have no idea what's going on. Um, but over the years, I, I listened to it and I, I you know, 
at the more critical literature I read on it, I was like, wow, this is the show that, that, I mean, company sort of really started his career and he was recognized as a, mm-hmm. as a, um, composer lyricist. Like you talk about in uh, some of your, your company episodes, yeah. Follies was the show that everybody talked about. You know, Michael Bennett was co-directing with uh, Hal Prince and they were, you know, working with Jonathan Tonic again. I mean, with this big full orchestra sound and they were, man, it was really getting deep in this, some really dark material and doesn't have the same, uh, you know, being alive in company really, you know, they really struggled with that ending, as you know, and they, some people say they copped out and they chose right. a more positive ending, but Follies doesn't do that. Uh, sure does not. And, no. You know, I finally got to see it in, uh, what was it, 2000, in the early aughts, I saw the production, the revival that started at either Signature Theater um, that went to uh, Broadway where they, they did the revival with Bernadette Peters and right. Danny Burstein and wow i mean it was they did it full out and they did it they did it well i thought um and and i was just kind of like i felt transported when i heard the first notes of that overture or or prologue i I always forget if it's an overture and then prologue and it was just man it was uh i I try and imagine what it was like on opening for or or even any time in that original production with all those stars and some of those people who were there for the zigfield follies you know which they were writing about so meta I love this show. And then, you know, I got to see the, there was the uh, London production with Imelda Staunton yes. uh, that they recorded a few years ago. And uh, there's a couple of productions coming up in the San Francisco Bay area that I'm sadly not working on, but all my friends are. And I just, uh, I can't wait to see it um, again. It's, um, I saw it in concert out here also a few years ago, done very well with 42nd Street Moon, a company that does in concert production every year. And it just, it's just layers of an onion and you peel it out and you think you've seen one thing and you see a different actor and it's totally different performance. Yeah. I, th- I think that's kind of the, the magic trick here is that the the songs are one thing and the lyrics are great and uh, there's this lush score underneath it but i think every actor and actress does bring something unique to these roles because you can play them slightly different and still have thematic meaning and resonance and i don't know there's something special and i think i took for granted for so long this show and this crazy idea of mine to start a podcast and delve into every song Sondheim song has uh, proved to be fruitful for me because it's like, man, I'm so glad I'm doing a deep dive on follies because I think I still would have like dis- not valued it as much as I do now. I can't wait to listen to all the episodes. I mean, I love that about this podcast. Like I'm, I'm a completionist at heart, not just when it comes to not wanting to like cut the score, you know, like I want to yeah. play every note because it's like the authors put it there. But you know, if I'm playing video games or board games, like I want to do every secret <laughs> level in everything and go all the way through. And yeah. uh, so I love what you're doing with this because, you know, like you said, you know, you get to it, you get to every song and you may think, ah, oh, not a big deal. Maybe I skip past this sometimes, but no, it's so much effort was put into yeah. making this song seem perfect and effortless <laughs> okay can i say this is what i've discovered um and i'm going to ask you what your kind of favorite songs from the score are but the the biggest example of that which i don't think has happened in this season yet but i don't remember how time works anymore so um but it's <laughs> the song one more kiss from follies is i think a beautiful but b is like weirdly talking exactly about what's happening in the show (laughs) at that time while still sounding like a 1910s song. Um, I don't know. It's like this, like three, four different layers are going on in one song 
that I think is like people could skip past this and not realize, no, this is actually super important what's going on here. Yeah, well, that's a great observation because it is, I mean, they're all pastiche songs, mm-hmm. you know, as, he, as he's talked about and many other scholars have pointed out, but it's like, it goes the furthest back because you're going back to like operetta and yeah. it's like kind of Victor Herbert style. Right. <laughs> um, over the years, I've done a handful of uh, operetta, not just Gilbert and Sullivan, but other comic operetta and stuff at a place called College Light Opera Company where I've worked at mm-hmm. and uh, cut my teeth as an early young conductor and have still worked there over the summers in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. And um, I remember when I came back and listened to this and I was like, oh, this is, I mean, like he knows his stuff. Like this is like legit, like he knows how to do a pastiche song. And so it goes the furthest back. And so people tend to say, they get a little, not alienated, but they go, oh, this isn't as, they they don't settle into it as much Mm -hmm. depending on their familiarity. But you're right. There are so many levels going on with setting it up. If I remember where it happens in the show, I mean, like, it's not the 11 o'clock number, but they're like, they're getting this ready to set up the, uh, the, the, you know, the nightmare sequence yeah. and everything is, all the cards are on the table and it's commenting directly on the action. And yet from a couple different standpoints, and it's um, also, it's so musically indulgent. So many of the other songs, you know, like aren't necessarily big things by which I mean, you don't need a big operatic voice to do it, to carry it. Right. But that one, you you do need like a you know legit <laughs> a soprano or spinto or right, right. whatever voice type, and usually you put the opera star there, and so it's also commenting in that way on operetta on what it does, and it's so indulgent harmonically and vocally. I love that one. For me, though, my favorite numbers, I mean, the nightmare sequence at the, the love, sorry, the Loveland sequence. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think of it as a nightmare psychoanalysis. Yes, yeah, psycho follies, <laughs> I think, is what Sondheim refers Psych- to it as. Yeah. Yes, yes. There's a couple. Uh, w- waiting for the girls upstairs when you first, and you really feel the like two timelines going on and messing with your brain. Yes. <laughs> Man, there is something about, I mean, the show is about memory. Or, or lack thereof, or how we perceive the past. So many of his shows are about that, you know, um, a little night music specifically too, but man, it just, tra- it's, tra- it's transportive. It, is that a word, transportive? It transports me back to, I don't even want to say my youth, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm not middle-aged yet, but I just get that feeling of nostalgia. Mm-hmm. And one director that I work with, uh, that I've done a lot of Sondheim shows with, talks about how nostalgia is... Um, we think of it as a comfortable feeling, but really it's a form of grieving. Yeah. And what are these characters doing? They're grieving. And yet it, it can still be exciting too and comforting. So all these songs do that, but I love how Waiting for the Girls Upstairs does it musically. It, it gets you excited. And it's like when you, you go and talk to an old high school friend or, or, or whatever level you're reminiscing about, and you just get that feeling of, hey, remember this? Remember when right. this happened? <laughs> and oh, it's perfect. Well, I love it. I'll so. go even a step further because I think it's actually even even slightly different than that for, for me, which is uh, this is a little bit of a soapbox that I get on about nostalgia in particular, because I okay. think uh, a, a too much nostalgia is actually a negative because you're always living in the past. Right. Which I think actually uh, sometimes kind of realizes. And I think that's why he's so fascinated about the past. And what I find his shows do is that 
they kind of do the same thing that you just mentioned for me, which is like, oh, like I, this makes me long for the past, but it's like, I'm sure the Germans have a word for this, but it's like, (laughs) I feel nostalgic for a time that I was not a part of. Um, right. And it's like, that's what does so well. It's because with his pastiche, which he's able to do, he's not just like, Hey, remember star Wars? Here's star Wars again. It's, it's more like, it's like, remember the follies? You probably don't, but this is what the follies was like, even though it really wasn't what the follies was like. And so it's like, he's working at two different ways. Yeah. He connects it, uh, to the characters because we care about the characters and we see how much it meant to them. And somewhere while we're listening somewhere in our brain, we think, I felt that feeling before about other things. Exactly. And yeah. we instantly connect with them. It, connection, you yeah. know, uh, which is in all of his shows. But yeah, very good insight. He 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 makes you care about something you didn't think you care about. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know. Like, I do it. I care about the old English countryside? Not really. But I mean, yeah, like A Little Night Music does that for me. Do I have any you- relationship with like... Um, uh, the East and West meeting. No, but I love that show. So it's like, it, there's this yeah. weird thing that goes on in his shows many times. Yeah. I am. Um, the other big number for me, um, aside from the final sequence, which is more like a musical scene, basically. Yeah. I love when he writes, takes all. I love when there's the whole scene is the song, yeah. like in uh, a weekend, a weekend in the country yes. or um, uh, opening doors from merrily roll along. Man, yeah. it's just exciting because everything's already paced for you. So it's always going to be exciting. He's, he's taking that into account. But uh, I, um, they're also good, but I'm still here mm-hmm. is like the ultimate torch song. That song goes on such a journey, lyrically, figuratively, mm-hmm. figuratively vocally, character wise. And I loved in the six by six, uh, six by Sondheim documentary, the James Pine documentary came out a couple of years ago. Yeah. Uh, I loved how they uh, characterized that scene and made it about the performers and not the uh, the person actually performing it, but the one he was singing about. Mm-hmm. I've been through Reno, I've been through Beverly Hills, now I'm here. Reefers and vino, rescue religion and pills, and I'm here. I've been called a pinko commie tool But I got through it, stinko, by my pool I should have been to an acting school That seems cool Still, someone said You're sincere So I'm here I don't know what it is, but that song well, well, I think what's beautiful about that one specifically is uh, actually what Sondheim writes about in his book, uh, what, because a lot of people perform the song and oftentimes like yeah. change the lyrics. And he's like, um, pretty much across the board, all of those versions are bad. And the reason why <laughs> is because the, a this song was sort of written with Yvonne DiCarlo simultaneously, yes. but also it's not about her at the same time. <laughs> like it's a character. It is Carlotta in this show, right? So we're using a little yeah. bit of of Yvonne's like backstory, but really it's like. Oh, I can fill in the holes here. Even if I don't know anything about you, it's like, I get it. You were, you went through like the red scare. You went through this, you came back on television, Depression. you, know, you yeah. went through all of this stuff. And so that is a person. And I feel more attuned to you. Yes. And it's something that he does very well. Uh, this is from a director, Elkana Pulitzer. That I've worked with here. She said something that I'll never forget. She says the highly specific is deeply universal. Yeah. It's so wild and when you get down to that. Board- yeah. The more specific an actor gets, the more universal it is. And so when, not just in the lyric writing, but when he writes it, 
He writes a song for a specific performer. What songs have been covered more? The ones that were written specifically for Bernadette Peters and Mandy Patinkin or Angela Lansbury or any number or like of, even um, like uh, sending the clowns for Glennis Johns, like talk about yes. writing for a performer and then blows up afterwards. Ex- exactly. And so the, the ones that are written so specifically for a performer then become, they, uh, even though at first people think, well, like I can't, they're so afraid to just copy the original <laughs> person that they, they go so deep into it yeah. and they interpret it even more. And I think he talks about that in finishing the hat um, a, a little bit, but it's just, yeah, I think that's so true of all of his work, but yes, for when you get to numbers like this, these epic torch songs or other mm-hmm. numbers that people really own, it becomes uh so universal you know like no one is alone yeah uh, that's not even a torch song necessarily but from shows that are so iconic and so specific you know i mean finishing the hat i mean how specific like you talk to anybody about what's actually going on there i try and say I, you know this people might say well, what's one of your favorite sondheim songs either that or someone in a tree and i said well okay it's about this you know um it's about this japanese uh international peace treaty and these people right yeah, <laughs> and yeah. they're just like what and then uh, it doesn't matter anymore if, if, you know, the song speaks for itself. There are many little scenes that work on their own. Yeah, it's, it's true of all his work. I love it. It's just infinitely interpretable. And he will be around, uh, you know, for as, you know, as long as Shakespeare, as long as humans are around, mm-hmm. he'll, people will still perform his work and still be interpreting it, which is why I'm, I just, I, I never get tired of it. I never get tired of doing it. Into the woods, an eighth time, let's do it. Let's go. There's more stuff there to figure out that I didn't get the first time mm-hmm. or that some new actor will act, just accent or do a different phrasing or a whole different take on the scene and everything will just click and I'll think, I've been thinking about this all wrong. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Well, Dave, thank you so much for joining me here today. This has been a lot of fun. I'd like to end off here with, with people who come on. Is there an easy way for people to see what you're doing, what you're up to online. Yeah. Um, you can check out my website, davidmeschler.com, spelled M-O-S-C-H-L-E-R, or go to awesomeorchestra.org uh, to see more about that. And I'm on uh, Instagram and um, Facebook and uh, Twitter and all that stuff, usually just at David Meschler or at Dave Meschler. Perfect. Thank you again, Dave. Thank you so much for having me, Kyle. Thank you for listening. You can send emails to puttingittogetherpodcast at gmail.com. Also, you can find Sondheim Podcast on Twitter or Instagram. And you can support the show on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash puttingittogetherpodcast. Thank you to the Alberta Podcast Network, to Park Power, and to World on Fire this week. Putting It Together is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and pretty much anywhere you can get podcasts from. Consider subscribing so that you never miss an episode. Next week, we'll be talking about The Right Girl. Right, Margie? As always, a big thanks to the great Chris Taniguchi, who designed the podcast artwork, and Nick Driscoll for composing our theme music. Well, we've reached the end of our episode. Yes, I know. Goodbye for now.